welcome. This is a Vascular Forum interview. Welcome to this new episode of the Vascular Forum interviews. Today, we are going to talk about training programs, education and skill development with Drs. Isabel van Herzle and Colin Bicknell. So in terms of medical knowledge, what would your advice be to young trainees? Which vascular surgery books would you recommend? When should they aim to finish them? And when should they begin to read scientific literature, you know, studies and all the novel scientific publications? This is something that can be quite overwhelming, especially to young trainees with so many new articles published each month. I agree entirely with this statement that this can be overwhelming, especially when you're talking about scientific literature. And it's possibly the worst situation to be in where you think you're asking a very simple question to PubMed and after three and a half days of looking at articles, you still haven't really got the answer and you don't really understand. But I think that you can simplify things by making your questions easier. Why not inquire and ask specific questions each time you see a case each week, such as, uh, why is Mr. So-and-so doing this operation on the carotid? And then what techniques can we use? I would advise people just to vary their approaches, to have a look in the textbook, perhaps look at the big trials that have been held in that area, but I wouldn't go delving too deeply into the research unless they were really interested. I would advise having a look at the anatomy. I usually do it on the internet. And I would advise having a look at some of the YouTube videos and podcasts that are there to be able to understand. And getting an idea from different aspects like that will help get a sort of a large grounding in knowledge to start off with. And then you can always study these areas in more detail as you get through into the higher career to know exactly how you would manage your practice when you're a consultant. I think the academic reading is something they start learning now in med school. So I think something that's very good. When people are very junior, I try to tell them to focus first on the anatomy, to make sure they feel comfortable there, at least that they know if they're in search what they're doing. And at our meetings every week, they have to present a case. And then we also expect them a little bit to have read at least the major trials. So why is this person being operated and what is it based upon? I would strongly suggest people to read at least two articles per month. That's not that much, but just read them and try to read them and understand them. And if you don't, discuss them. We have a journal club in the hospital where people presented sometimes even a poor or a good article, but I think it's something that everybody learns from. I'm going to be honest. I get a lot of my articles nowadays via social media, via Twitter. And I love the podcast. That's something I really tell the trainees as well, provided by you guys, but also by Audible Bleeding. If, for example, if you have to travel by public transport or by car for a long time to get to work or somewhere else, this is a good way actually of just learning something while somebody is talking to you. Some people look at it as being rather lazy. I think it may even trigger them to start looking for more information and hopefully look up the real scientific work. So that's my thing. And I think get involved and exchange ideas with other young colleagues. And I think you just trigger one another and become more enthusiastic to learn more about it. What about the guidelines? I think the guidelines are great. I think people read them a lot, the trainees, but not always at the beginning. So most of the time later on in their career, where they really want to know what's happening. Sometimes I prefer that they first read the original articles. For example, the small aneurysm trial, the EVR1, the EVR2, the ACST1 and 2, for example, rather than immediately the guideline. And how important do you think it is for young physicians to be involved in the operating theatre? 
when you begin training, I think we're all obsessed with the, you know, going into the OR and being in the OR as much as possible. Is this a correct attitude or is this something that kind of needs to be, you know, shaped and modified over time as well? It's wonderful that everyone wants to go into the OR the whole time. It should be encouraged and never, never discouraged. Even if you're doing it to medical students to show them how brilliant vascular surgery is and, and if it's just a young surgeon trying to be involved in more and more, I think it's absolutely wonderful. I don't think there's any room for, for saying that we should be tempering that. However, being a surgeon is not all about being in theatre and you need to have an appreciation that it's not only learning how to cut to be a surgeon. Yeah, I think your indications and how to come up with a plan being able to interpret all your CT scans and having a plan when you're going to be treating somebody and having a plan B in case something may go wrong is very crucial as well. And I think one of the most important aspects as well is recognizing your own failures. If you have a complication and know how to deal with them and if you can't solve it, discuss it within your team and try to solve it as well. But also how to work within a team. How do you communicate with your anesthesiologist, with your nurse, with the ICU doctor in a decent way to manage that patient? Because you can be the perfect surgeon, but if before and afterwards there's no communication and nobody really knows what the pitfalls may be after this operation, then you may just fail. But I fully agree. The operating room is why we all do it. I still love being in the OR, but the rest is also quite important. And as already mentioned before, I think if you're young, it may be quite overwhelming to combine both and the ward and the outpatient clinic and the OR at the same time. So I think you just have to see how people can integrate this within their daily lives without putting too much pressure on their shoulders. You were just talking a little bit about teamwork skills. How can they be taught? I think our trainees get a lot of communication skills sessions with even psychologists. I also try to, when we see them the first time, again, after three months again, I also always try to give them some feedback about how they behave towards nurses, towards junior staff, towards medical students, how they behave within the team as well. But we don't have any dedicated uh, team training sessions in Belgium at the moment. So we do have dedicated team training, generically and in vascular. I think that before you get to that, if you're going to have training in terms of how you interact in a team and lead a team, it needs to be on the agenda for learning. And actually, the biggest step is just to make all those trainers that normally do the training about how you stitch and how you sew up and how you manage uh, this case and that case. If they start thinking about how you manage a team, how you lead a team and how you act in theatre, actually, you can get a huge amount of this team training done completely without having to do a dedicated team training. But we've got a generic team training at Imperial that's run by Sadie Side. They've named it the HOT program, the Help Our Teams Transform program. And it's actually came to each and every one of the theatre with a simulation-based scenario that our teams have done together with peer-to-peer -peer feedback and with an honest rundown of how the different team members behave generically and during the simulation. Within vascular surgery, we have run a team training program for a number of years, which got a big pause during COVID, but is back now again, where we've run simulations on a weekly basis for vascular surgical procedures for vascular surgeons, radiologists, anaesthetists, the nurses in theatre and the nurses on the ward and our nurse specialists have all come down and joined in each of the procedures. 
it sprung really from a number of the different research projects that we've done for the landscaping errors landscaping uh, aortic procedures work and also some of the work we've done in the simulated angiography suite which we were lucky enough to try out what about leadership skills how do you train those it's always really difficult to talk about how you train leadership skills because there will always be an argument of how much you're born with, how much is nurtured, how much is different situations inspire different people. But you can look at how leadership in theatre is managed. You do not have to have one single leader and you look at shared leadership within teams. Then what you can do is get together teams of people and put them into simulated environments and have a look at how they assess and manage the situation at hand, about how the different members of the team take the lead on different aspects of the procedure, about how the team deal with emergencies, about how communication happens and about how that's led as well. We have a black box installed in our hybrid angiosuite, suite and with the psychology department, we've looked at leadership styles of uh, the surgeon. So the surgeon could be the resident or a consultant. And it's very rewarding to see that, for example, the transformational leadership style, which is that you don't, you have transactional, you have transformational and passive. So passive is somebody who just stands behind and doesn't really do a lot. Transactional is a typical leader who says, oh, you do something for me and I'll reward you and you can do that. While the transformation is somebody who really lets people blossom and, and let them do whatever needed and steer them if necessary. And we saw that if you have a passive leader, that if you have a good team, that actually the team members step in and they speak up and they use close communication and they, they use the cuss words like I'm concerned. With the transactional leader, it's not always very positive because some people are, are a bit afraid of maybe if they don't do very well, they may get slightly punished. While with the transformational leadership, you see that you get the best communication within that team. Although we all claim that we know how to deal with it and how to teach it, I think it's something that still needs quite a lot of work to do. And I'm often concerned that we may not be the right people to teach this because I think there are a lot more specialists out there who know a lot more about it than us vascular surgeons. It does have to be generic, though. So we can't have a leadership specialist in every theatre to teach you. No, no, I'm not saying that, training. but it's, it's just something that I found interesting to see, because what you also see is that, for example, if you divide your surgery into various phases, that while scrubbing, while draping the patient, you're starting the procedure, that a lot of the lead surgeons are passive because somebody's doing the work really well. And that's only during the crucial parts of surgery that they step forward and they really become involved. So the leadership styles actually fluctuate a lot throughout the various endovascular procedures that you're doing. But you see that the whole team behaves better if you have a transformational leader than if you have somebody who's really standing back all the time and doesn't step forward if things are necessary. Is this something that you do on a regular basis or do you just take the information out of this black box? Or... I know, so it's a black box is nothing more than just videotaping whatever is being done in the OR. Mm -hmm. So you're looking, you have like the landscape view of the entire team. You have the anesthesiology monitor, fluoroscopy, and also the technical skills. And then we've asked psychology students to evaluate the leadership styles in 22 cases. So it's part of a research project that we're looking on. And how do we do in the hybrid OR? What is going very well? What is not going so well? And how can we improve in the future? Not only for trainees, but also for consultants and for various people within the group.
Now I would like to ask Isabel to elaborate on her research on the impact of structured stepwise simulation-based training on technical and team skills for basic, advanced and complex endovascular procedures. I started working on developing a curriculum for endovascular skills training, basic endovascular skills for treatment, for example, of a stenotic iliac lesions or lesions in the superficial femoral artery causing invalidating claudication or critical limb threatening ischemia. So we've developed what we call the Prospect, which is a, a training curriculum involving e-learning and involving simulation-based training. And we've been able to show that if trainees had the opportunity to have access to e-learning, that they perform better than those who were trained traditionally. But those who had access to both e-learning and simulation, they actually made fewer errors during the surgery, but also they were able to carry out the procedure more independently. So the consultant had to take over less frequently. So we were very happy to show that because it was a randomized controlled trial. And we thought, okay, we found it. This is the way to go forward. So let's just involve and install this prospect in other countries, which we've done in Denmark, France, Belgium, and Canada. Unfortunately, we saw that if we offered the training program, that 65% of the people dropped out of the trainees, although this was offered for free. And the main reason is because they didn't have protected time to actually spend time on the simulator or to learn the skills. Some people were not really interested in it. They believed that it took too much time and they didn't gain enough information from it. But the most important reason why people dropped out is you need to have somebody facilitating this training. And that should not be Colin or myself because that's impossible because we're already too busy. So what we've done is our PhD student is fully trained and he's always available. I think there is a way forward, but you really have to organize it. And of course, your simulator sometimes breaks down and then you have to reschedule. So you need to have a proper organization, ideally that you can fit this training into the daily working time of the trainees. You need to have a local facilitator and a technician. That is, I think, a very crucial part. The main work we've done, we've done a little bit about procedure rehearsal, that you can upload your CT scan of a patient who you're about to treat with an EVAR on a simulator. Uh, we've been able to show that even in experienced teams, that the number of errors reduced, I think it's a great way. I think people learn how to size, people prepare, come up with a plan, and you can practice your real patient case the day before or the week before, and then do it actually in real life we saw that it actually influenced the performance of the team members significantly, but it does require, of course, some time. It's almost like warming up. If you're a musician or if you're, for example, a cyclist, you will not just immediately jump on your bike and start running a part of the Tour de France. You also warm up and look on how everything is. So it's quite similar. We've run a couple of ruptured aneurysm courses where we did not only focus on the implanter, but also on the anesthesiologists and the nurses. Those were fantastic courses, but they're not really, I think, cost effective, at least for the companies who are providing them. But it's a great way of showing that not just technical skills matter, but also the way you communicate and how you work together to improve your outcomes. That's a bit of summary of what I've been doing in collaboration with the entire team and with lots of colleagues at Imperial College, Zurich and other hospitals. I actually had the opportunity of attending one of those courses four or five years ago. Now. Yep. It was really nice. So what do you mean with e-learning? What, what are you exactly referring to? Well, the e-learning we've created is actually a combination of a PowerPoint presentation with some videos in it. And you can actually go through that e-learning whenever you want to. You can do it at home. You can do it at work. You can do it on your smartphone. And people have to go through the e-learning. And once they believe that they've learned a certain part of the procedure, so one is on generic endovascular skills, 
One is on Alia disease, one is on SFA, and one is on attitude and behavior. If you think, okay, I know everything, then you can just call the facilitator and he will give you 10 multiple choice questions. And if you get eight of 10 correctly, then you're allowed to move on to the next phase, which is a simulation-based training. If you fail on the e-learning, you have to go back and then you just have to decide yourself. So in total, you could regard as the prospect just the preparation before you were allowed to do a case in real life. It took something like between 13 and 15 hours in total, but that is not in one and two days. So it's really spread across the board. Is there a possibility of incorporating new technologies into simulation training? Everything is possible. The problem is that simulator companies are being sponsored by the device industry. And so it's only when the device industry believes that a certain training model may be beneficial that it's being produced. With regards to peripheral arterial disease, I'm going to be very honest. I think you can learn how to do the basic endovascular skills like crossovers, etc. And the various steps that you have to do during an endovascular procedure. But trying to candelate an occlusion, that's something you don't learn on a simulator. That's something you really need to learn in real life. I think the same is true with puncturing retrogradely. You can probably do it on a corpse or on a pig or on a sheep, but not on a simulator. I would like to also ask Colin to elaborate on the landscape of error in our procedures multicenter study. And if possible, to give us an overview of the unique team training program that has been developed at the Imperial College. The landscape of error in aortic procedures study, the LEAP study, was something that was generated by us to have a look at what safety aspects were a problem within aortic procedures, what errors occurred. We designed an error capture system that teams could capture themselves and then managed with the kind sponsorship of the Circulation Foundation to be able to fund a study run by Rachel Lear, who came to do a PhD with us. She went and visited each of 10 sites and had 20 different teams in those 10 sites and had them all train on five to 10 procedures using this error capture tool, collecting 185 procedures over a year or so or more's work, sending us all of the errors that occurred during aortic cases in terms of communication and equipment-related errors and patient-related errors and some anatomy-based ones and the safety aspects. And there was a few other smaller categories as well. What's fascinating about that is that we got this unique insight into the errors that team made and it brought home to us that you could no longer blame the patient. The patient-related errors were very, very small down here and you could no longer blame the anaesthetist, but most of the errors by far were either due to communication errors between team members or an awful lot to do with set-up equipment use or the use of new technology. About 80% of them were seemingly very minor, but may have led to greater problems later on. The headline figure was that 6.5% of the errors were harmful, were causing harm to the patient based on our definition, which is really a definition which said if there was physiological harm in terms of drop in blood pressure that needed to be collected or severe respiratory injury, or if there was a need for an extra procedure that was a result of that error, then it was a harmful procedure. And that's 6.5% of the cohort that was harmed, 50% of those due to team working and communication-based errors. The number of errors was worse in endovascular procedures, 
the number of errors was increased in more complex procedures, I guess, as you expect, and was increased when the operator was using a new technology that it wasn't altogether so familiar with. So there was definitely a, a technology and a communication-based theme that went on from that. It was as a result of that that we decided to set up a team training program. We, of course, had the simulated operating suite at the time, which was available for use, which is a very great resource for doing that. We had a very close team who were very interested in doing team training program. And we had Celia Riga, who was the education lead at the time, who drove the program and it really did take driving. We developed a curriculum which dealt with routine cases and it dealt with emergency cases and emergency scenarios. So that one week we would do a plain and simple endovascular aortic repair or a thoracic repair. We might then do the same thing with an unstable patient that needed resuscitating and, and had a, a higher tempo to it. Each of these scenarios being carefully planned and scripted and took an awful lot of work to get going, of course. One of the nice things that we were able to do later on was to have routine cases and then something happens during that routine case. The best example, of course, being iliac rupture at the end of an endovascular repair with a case that goes seemingly very well and then the patient crashes at the end completely unexpectedly. And it's very nice to take a team through a case, giving them feedback, saying everything's going very well and then having the simulator arrest behind them and seeing how they react to it after not being prepared at all. One of the great things we could do was actually be reactive to serious incidents that occurred. The best example for us was a spinal drain error that occurred and was a serious incident in the hospital, which was fully investigated. So we decided to get teaching and training going from this and simulate the procedures of TVAR and spinal drain management which leads to an awful lot of people being trained in one thing and certainly did do something for our management practice in spinal drains. It's brilliant that the team training, we're still doing it, but it is time consuming. You need a dedicated lead. You need a very enthusiastic and engaged team. It has to be within the culture of your team. And it takes every time the registrars change, every time the staff change, it changes the same amount of effort to get them engaged into it. I think what we're trying to do is to make the whole thing simpler. We're trying to bring it into the theater to be able to train next to the real operating suite so that our teams can do a bit more like Isabel was researching practice the real case and then go and do the real case. And we're trying to make up standardized playbooks or music scores for people doing team training, including how they should be giving feedback on various aspects of team training to make it a bit more widespread for everyone to be able to learn how to do a, a decent team training procedure and get to the real benefit from it if they want to do it in their units. I think both of those ideas would be absolutely great. I don't know how broadly, how widespread they are in, in vascular surgery around the world. They are not widespread by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's something that needs to be on the agenda for vascular surgery. Yeah, I think the, this whole simulation-based training, if it's for technical and non-technical skills training, I think if it becomes mandatory, like it is with the ATLS course before you're allowed to touch a trauma patient, then I think it will be done. I think the reason is it at the moment it's not. And I think in some institute, I think it's in Denmark, like the prospect, what we've invented has become mandatory before you're allowed to treat a patient by endovascular means in, in real life. So I think 
it's something where we need a little bit more support, I think, from local governments, but also uh, societies. Finally, do you have any advice for older trainees or young consultants who are beginning to face patients in clinical scenarios independently? I would say keep your eyes open and make sure you keep on learning and interact with your mentors that you had. And, and even if you're a young consultant and you come across a case you really don't feel comfortable with, don't be hesitant to discuss it with somebody else. Uh, don't just jump into the mud water, just uh, be open for it. And if you have a complication, also discuss it with your colleagues. My advice would come from the research we've done and what we've been discussing, which is that you need to pay just as much attention to the setup of the case and the treatment of the patient beforehand and afterwards as you do for the stitch in the back wall of the aorta when you're starting that anastomosis. And all that learning will be just as worthwhile in your career. Thank you both very, very much for taking the time to talk to us today in the Vascular Forum podcasts. And it's been a real pleasure. We will be back soon with more Vascular Forum podcasts. Remember, you can listen to all podcasts, open access and SoundCloud, Spotify, the Vascular Forum webpage and the ESBS e-library. Mm-hmm.